before we dive into John 15 today, uh, let me just invite you to come and pick up some of what we're, we're leaving behind. I, we're moving downstream in this riverbed, and we're mining for gold in John's gospel, and we're finding rich truths, but I, we just can't do it all on a Sunday morning. And so I feel every week, I don't know if you feel this way at all, I feel every week like, wait a minute, I'd like to come back and have two more weeks on this passage. I'm going to feel that way today um, as well. So I'm just saying, don't let this be the only time you're, you're digging into John's gospel. Um, as, we're, as we're moving further downstream, you can break from the group and run back upstream with your pan and do a little private digging and mining, and you will find some, some rich gold in John's gospel. So I know there are going to be things I missed today that you know, some of you even maybe would want me to comment on. So um, yeah, just want to invite you to, to dig in for yourself outside of Sunday morning. It's a rich book, the Gospel of John. So yeah, so that being said, if you're joining us for the first time, we're studying through John's Gospel, and we're in chapter 15 today, and we're in the middle of an amazing goodbye. Jesus is saying goodbye to the disciples, and we said last week that the more meaningful the relationship, the more meaningful the goodbye. The more you love someone, the more meaningful the goodbye would be. And so Jesus loved the disciples. He loved them, and so when he said goodbye to them, he promised them something. He promised them two things. He promised them, I will come back for you, and while I'm gone, the Spirit of God, another helper, another presence, another advocate is going to be in my place, and he will be in you and with you, and he, he's going to walk with you, and it'll be like me being present with you. So Jesus promises the disciples these two things. We talked about those last week. Now, Jesus, Jesus has made these two promises to his disciples. Now it's time for the disciples to promise themselves to Jesus. That is the way really good relationships work, right? The way the best relationships work is that there's, that there's promised love involved. It's not quid pro quo. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. You do this for me, I do this for you. It's not, it's not that. It's promissory love. It's future love. The best relationships are built on future love. A crude example of this um, would be your allegiance to your favorite team, even though they didn't win it all last year, right? You keep coming back to your favorite football team. Why? It's just a crude shadow of promissory love. Or a better example would be Friendship over time, even though distance has separated you from some of your best friends, you sustain that relationship. Or even disagreement has separated you from a good friend, but you, your relationship's built on something more. Probably the best example, the best earthly example of promissory love, future love, is what? Marriage. Probably the best earthly example of of future love, promissory love, is, is marriage. When a man promises himself to a wife and keeps that promise at year 15, year 20, year 25, year 30, year 40, year 50, year 60, that's promissory love. Love that gets better and better because it's future love. It's not just right now. Like, oh, I love you. I'd do anything for you right now. Okay, 
We want to know what, what will you do 10 years from now. 20 years from now. So when a man continues to promise himself to a wife, when a woman continues to promise herself to her man after the kids are raised, after they're gone, future love is, future love is where it's at. Jesus, listen, Jesus promises himself to the disciples. Jesus, we're in the middle of this great extended promise, essentially. That's what's happening in John 15 through 17. Uh, or 14 through 17. And so we're in the midst of this amazing promised relationship. And so Jesus promises himself to the disciples, and the disciples promise themselves to Christ. And Jesus is inviting them to make good on that promise. That's why he says, abide in me. To abide in Christ, to abide in Christ is to discover promised love. To, to abide in Christ is to discover future love, love in the, most, in, in the most life-giving of all relationships. To abide means to remain or continue. And in this context, it means to remain or stay in a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ. I, I want to share with you four, uh, so I'm, I want to walk through four characteristics of abiding in Christ this morning. Four characteristics of a life-giving relationship with Jesus. Vital union, persevering dependence, Fruit-bearing, fullness of joy, those four things, vital union, dependence, bearing fruit, and then fullness of joy. So think with me for just a few minutes about this first idea that in this life-giving relationship with Jesus, there is vital union. That's what this image is designed to convey. That's what the vine and the branches is really all about. It's about a vital union. Take a moment, if you've got your Bible open, and I would encourage you to follow along with me. You could pick up the Pew Bible if you uh, don't have one open in front of you, and just follow along for a few minutes. Look at how many times the phrase, in me, occurs. Just, just scan the passage for a moment. Look for some variation of in me. What, what is Jesus talking about? Abide in me. In me, he says over and over and over again. The, the New Testament is filled with this language. In fact, the Apostle Paul will say something like, in Christ or in him, hundreds of times, not 50 or 75 times, hundreds of times, like 200 and something times. He talks about being in Christ. For the apostles, to be, to be saved or be in a right relationship with God is to be in Christ. In me is what Jesus is talking about. Over and over again, he's talking about union with him, a life-giving relationship, not just a, a, a spiritual aspect of a life, but rather Jesus is saying, your very existence, body, and soul is tied to me. Jesus is saying through this extended metaphor of the vine and the branches that God is the creator and sustainer of life. The very energy that creates life and sustains life comes through Christ. This, we learn this in verse 1 of the, of, the, of the gospel, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, right? He is in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and li that life was the light of men. So that very life, Jesus is now saying in this analogy, in this extended metaphor in John 15, it's like a, that life is pulsating from me to you, just like a vine gives life to every one of its branches, if you don't find me to be a vital union, 
if you don't find me to be the life-giving union, you can't know God. You, you can't know him. Christianity is about the simple discovery that you cannot live life separated from God. We have a, a number of, we have I, I, either nine or ten crepe myrtles in our yard. So we're all, all the time managing the crepe myrtles. And I am, I'm, it's always amazing to me how, how this happens over and over again. But here comes a, a shoot, you know, off the side. And so it's maybe eight or ten inches long. It's a nice healthy shoot and it's turning into a branch. And I can walk by and just kind of pluck it off. You don't have to get out the pruning shears to do the big work there, right? You just, just pluck it off. And it's amazing to me how quickly that branch that is in my hand, like within minutes, within an hour, it looks like it's been off the tree for much longer than that. And it's amazing to me that in the summer heat, this little shoot could survive because it's attached to the vine, attached to the main branch. I guess what I'm saying this morning is this. You and I tend to think we can live separated from the branch. You can't. We can't live separated from this vital union. What God is doing through Christ is saying, not only, not only will you experience life by being tied to me, the best quality you could ever experience in life, the best quality of life comes only by being tapped directly into me. So, both, so vital union means both life and quality of life in John's gospel. That's the first idea. We want to stop trying to find life outside of him. Vital union with Christ. That's what abiding means. Secondly, abiding means persevering dependence. Ongoing persevering dependence. Look with me at verse 6. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, if anyone does not continue in me, if anyone does not persevere in dependence on me, if anybody does not abide in me, he'll be like a branch separated from the vine and thrown away. There's this, there's this perseverance tone that runs throughout the whole chapter. Uh, there's this perseverance and faithfulness. The disciples have a responsibility to remain faithful to Christ. Yes, it is the vine that gives life and sustains life but it is also necessary for the disciples to keep themselves attached, not to keep themselves busy, not to keep themselves doing all sorts of things, but to simply keep themselves tied to the vine, attached. The word abide uh, means remain or continue. Kostenberger translates it remain. Uh, it means remain or continue, or you could think about it like this. It just means to stay, to stay connected to Christ. In the Old Testament, and, and this will come out a little more if you know your Old Testament, if you know the scriptures and you know your Old Testament story, this will make sense to you. In the Old Testament, the vine is a common symbol for, for who? For Israel, for God's people, for God's covenant people. And what's so interesting about that is, is when this image of the vine is used, most of the time it highlights Israel's unfaithfulness to God, not their faithfulness to him. Their failure to remain, to stay, to persevere. Just as a sidebar, perseverance and long obedience and faithfulness 
is underrated these days. It just is, in every sector. Now, in contrast to this, to such failure, in contrast to Israel's unfaithfulness, Jesus shows up on the scene, and Jesus makes another one of his radical claims, and he says, I am the true vine. He probably has Isaiah chapter 5 in mind. In Isaiah 5, there's this, this rich song that's written. Um, it's, it's a song that's written about Israel's unfaithfulness. He probably, has, he probably has Isaiah 5 in mind when he says, I am the true vine. Because in Isaiah 5, the song goes, God planted for himself a people. He planted for himself a vine. And he planted this vine in a beautiful, fertile land. And, and, and he was going to make provision for this vine. And he wanted the vine to flourish, Isaiah 5 says. But it doesn't flourish. It doesn't remain faithful. And it's in Isaiah's prophecy an indictment on God's people and their lack of faithfulness. Jesus is saying, look, not only, <laughs> Jesus is saying, not only am I the true bread from heaven, not only am I the true Moses, not only am I the true temple, Jesus is saying, I am the true Israel. I am the true faithful son. I am the, I am the vine. And, and if you will get in me, if you'll get in me, if you'll get in the real if you'll get in Christ, you will produce and bear fruit and faithfulness will mark your life. If you want to know God, you want to persevere in dependence on Him. And before we leave this, this persevering dependence language, I need to call attention to a couple things in the text. And maybe you could come back upstream and mine these later. Uh, but go back to verses 1 and 2 and notice that the heavenly father is called a gardener. He's called the vine dresser. He is the one who prunes and he's the one who works the, the branch. He's the one who works the vine and he's pruning and trimming and, he's, and, 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 and the point here under number two is that it would be worth persevering when things get hard. It would be worth when you're getting trimmed. It would be worth when you're being pruned. It would be worth when you feel the pressure of life for you to persevere. Because, look what the text says. It's not just the, it's not just the, the, the branches that aren't bearing fruit that he cuts off and tosses to the side. It's the branches that are bearing fruit. Listen, he trims and prunes that they might bear more fruit. That is so counterintuitive that I would embrace the difficulty because he's producing fruit in my life through the difficulty. Now, don't get hung up here on, some of you are wondering, wait a minute now, I thought if we were once saved, always saved, wait, he's taking branches off and he's chucking them, burning them in the fire, they're going, what's going to happen to them? That's not Jesus' point. Don't make, the, don't make the analogy walk on all fours, as they say. It, it, he's just simply trying to say, if you're connected to me, you're going to grow. If you're not connected me, to me, you won't grow, you'll wither, and you'll die. So instead, be connected to me, persevere through the pruning process. When I trim your life, Hebrews chapter, what, where is this in Hebrews chapter 12? Uh, where does the Father discipline those whom he loves? Somewhere in Hebrews. Help me out if it comes to you. Uh, Bible trivia moment. Uh, I see that hand. Okay. Neil, where is it? All right, I, just, I got a guy just buy a tractor from the back. Okay, very good. Um, I'm, now I'm all over the place. 
bring it, bring it back. Just bring it back. Um, don't be surprised when you start praying, God, I want to bear fruit in my life. If the gardener starts pruning deeper and starts really helping you to produce fruit. Persevere through that. Persevere through the difficulty and see that the Father is, is, is pruning so that you might bear more fruit. And if you read this passage all the way through, you'll see that this fruit is, is, is a life that is just filled up with joy and the love of God and brings glory to God the Father. And that's what you want in your life. So there's perseverance. I feel like I missed a point in there somewhere when I got distracted. But anyway, go with me to number three. Okay, number three, fruit bearing. Look at verse two and start, again, do a little Bible study with me here. If you've got, your, if you've got scripture open, start in verse two and just scan the passage for the word fruit. Do you see the word fruit? It's showing up over and over again. Fruit, fruit, fruit. What's Jesus talking about? He's saying when you abide in me and you stay connected, connected to me, I'm going to change your life. And it's going to be evident to people on the outside. There's going to be evidence of grace and fruit. One of the most important characteristics of the Christian life is fruit bearing. It's a recurring theme. It happens over and over again in the Bible. Believers who are genuinely in Christ bear fruit. Jesus says abiding is what produces that fruit. So when you abide in Christ, it's going to change you. You won't be able to lie, you won't be able to, lie to your parents like you used to. It'll, it'll make you less full of pride. When you abide in Christ, envy and resentment and greed and these things that, that are re you're really fighting with, they'll start to be conquered by grace and kindness, and patience, and love, and things you never thought possible to overtake your life. You'll start to have less and less root. Look, when you're abiding, when you abide in Christ, you will start to have, I'm going to try to put this at the street level for you, you will have less and less rude impulses toward other people. You'll start to realize, I shouldn't be like that. I'm responsible for that. Your selfishness will begin to stand out like a, a, like a light on your dashboard. Like you're, you're driving down the road and you will start to see the selfishness stand out in your own life. When you abide in Christ, generosity will become a new habit for you. Faithfulness will be something you value more and more in relationships. I mean, just at every turn, when you're abiding, God is going... Jesus promises, God promises, His Word promises that when, when someone abides in me... They will, they will discover human flourishing. They will discover what it looks like to be a truly human being and somebody that our children, grandchildren, would want to be like when they grow up. Last Sunday after church, uh, Jackie and Natalie kind of caught me in the commons and you know, because I had made that analogy about going to the produce section and picking out good fruit. Do you remember that from last Sunday? And so we were talking about picking out good fruit in the produce section. And, and Jackie and Natalie said, don't, don't ever send novel to the grocery store. 
because they, he'll come home with strawberries with green fuzz on them, you know. You don't want him to be the one to go. And so they were throwing, throwing daddy under the bus there. And so I thought I would do it publicly. And um, it just enjoy this moment with them. So don't ever send novel to the grocery store to get, to get good produce for you. Um, here, here's what I want you to understand. There comes at some point in your life, listen, at some point in your life, you have to begin to own whether or not your produce section, spiritually speaking, the evidences of fruit in your life is fresh, is good, or is it two weeks old, ten weeks old? Because people can, see, here's the crazy thing. We don't do it for other people, but they can see it. Colossians 1, says you should, Colossians 1 says you should walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, bearing fruit in every good thing that you do, bearing fruit in your daily life, increasing in the knowledge of God, it says. So characteristic of the Christian life, you see this over and over again in the Bible, is that you're growing, you're producing fruit, and it is observable to other people. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you're goody two-shoes. It doesn't mean you are super, like, squeaky clean. It just means that grace is taking over your life, and it comes out in the way that you do every good deed, Colossians 1 says. Bearing fruit in every good work. Is your love for Christ increasing? Is your love for Christ increasing? Is your affection for God growing? Are you tapped in to the life-giving source? So we, we planted some flowers um, late spring, early summer, and um, they're, they're tropical impatience and, or New Guinea impatience. And so they're supposed to be pretty tolerant, right, to the heat. But somehow they went a couple days. Look, I'm not exaggerating this when I say this, okay? So this is, not, this is not just preacher talk. Like, preachers exaggerate all the time, right? Pray for us. Um, th- what I'm about to tell you is not an exaggeration. So we, we plant these flowers. They go a couple of days without water. For some reason, we're traveling, whatever the case is. And so these impatience, you can see the, you can see the stem. That's really all that's, that's left of them that has any sort of body to it. So the, the flowers are gone, the petals are gone, the leaves are sort of just shriveled up and just almost not there. And so the stem that normally is standing straight up is just touching the ground like this. I'm not exaggerating, okay? So it's a bad week for these flowers. I'm like, it's game over. It's, they're, they're gone, right? So I said, Katie, Let's call 911, let's pump some water into these and see what happens, just for fun. I'm pretty sure they're gone. This is the part I'm not making up. Listen, I'm not exaggerating. Actually, I'm not making any of this sermon up. It's all true. (laughs) It's especially important for you to know that this is not embellishment. Those stems that were bent all the way over, like I'm talking 180 degrees, touching the ground, within 60 minutes... We just pumped water on them for like 20 minutes. I just flooded them with water. 
Within 60 minutes, the stem was straight up looking to the sun again. I'm like running around the house going to find everybody I could. Man, Jesus is real and this plant is living again. You should come out here and see this. This is amazing. This is, like, this is crazy. And so Katie and I became evangelists for watering plants. Like, here's what I'm trying to say. It, it's, it's really not too late if you're in a drought right now. And you're like, I, you know what, it just, Christian life just doesn't feel like it's supposed to feel right now. I understand that. Jesus understands that. But it's not too late for you to get attached to the source and to abide and to let him flood your soul like rivers of living water so that you'll be more like that tree in Psalm 1 that's planted by the rivers of water and it is flourishing again. Fruit bearing is a regular part. Flourishing is a regular part of life. If you're not at that place, that's okay. Just don't stay there. Just don't stay there. It's not wrong to be there. It would be wrong to look somewhere else to get out. So look to Christ and you will flourish again and, and get really get a sense of I'm going to abide and be attached and I'm going to let him feed my soul. I'm going to believe that vital union in Christ is the most important thing I need. It's the most life-giving of all relationships. I'm going to believe that because apart from me, the text says, you're very familiar with this, look at verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. What does that mean? Apart from me, you can do nothing. It doesn't mean you can literally do nothing. It just means that apart from me, your life will wither and die. It doesn't mean you can't go fake it this week and go to work and go through your relationships. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, I'll test that. No, you're, we're not robots. Apart from me, you can do nothing means your life will shrivel up and die in the heat of this world if you disconnect yourself from Christ. Here's the fourth point. Fullness of joy. Well, this is a good place to, this is a good, a good place to end. Um, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. The only way to get life-giving, lasting gladness that goes way beyond your circumstances is through Jesus, by, by really tying yourself, by abiding in him. Jesus was the happiest man to ever live. The Bible describes him that way in, in Hebrews chapter one. The, the, the writer of Hebrews says he was the oil of gladness. God anointed him with the oil of gladness beyond all of his companions, beyond all, of, all, all others. I think Jesus was the, I think that Jesus had the deepest sense of, I think Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, had the deepest sense of purpose and gladness mingled into one existence. That's who he was. That's what he offers. If you're like me, gladness comes and goes. Like, don't you want gladness that lasts longer than new car smell? 
I do. Don't you want gladness that lasts longer than, say, the two days after your team wins the World Series? Don't you want lasting gladness? And, and I'm, not, I'm not making the distinction between gladness and happiness and joy. I think sometimes uh, pastors and teachers will make a distinction between happiness and joy, and happiness is more circumstantial, and joy is not, and that kind of thing. And I appreciate what they're trying to say, but I, I don't think the Scriptures do that. And what I'd like to say is let's put all three on the table. It's good to be joyful. It's good to be glad. It's also good to be happy. You're allowed to smile. It would be a good thing for Christians to remember you're allowed to smile. Practice this with me this morning. Just smile. I mean, for a second, anyway. Just give it a shot. It's okay. I mean, I don't know what seminary said, pastors, we should just yell at them and not smile. I don't know who was teaching that, but at some point, it's not as compelling to be yelled at. I think Jesus probably, along the way, turned around once in a while and looked at the disciples and smiled at them. Don't you think the Son of God smiled on occasion? He's full of gladness, full of happiness. And what you're looking for that will transcend the most, like, the thing that you think will make you the happiest, right? Uh, you know, the excitement that you got because you're, you landed the biggest client your company's ever had. It's, and then two days later, that's gone? That excitement, that happiness is gone? Or same thing with the best beach vacation ever, and then you try to figure out how to get back into the earth's atmosphere and land back in Roanoke? What do you, how do, what do, you do? Nothing will sustain gladness like a relationship with God through Christ. And the beauty of it is he will shape all of your gladness into the rightful place in your heart and you will begin to see all of the other things that you thought made you the happiest as secondary reverberations as ripples in the pond of this amazing relationship that's why psalm 16 says he is my portion he is my inheritance he is my cup because because i because i've got him and then everything else is bonus and everything else becomes wow the, the, the simple beauty of a sunrise. And no longer is the sunrise a thing unto itself. It's a gift from the one who gives gladness a million times a day all over the planet. Jesus wants to be the most life-giving of all your relationships. And fullness of joy is what characterizes it. So Psalm 16, so Psalm 16 ends like this. In your presence... In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what we're looking for. That is what we're looking for, and that's who we're looking for. So that as you read the rest of Psalm 16, you see that it's the Lord. It's the Lord who is my inheritance. It's the Lord who is my portion. It's the, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. And I and his, and he is mine, and that gladness and joy that comes is really hard to describe to other people. Jesus says, I'm speaking these things to you. I'm talking about abiding so that you, you might discover the joy that I offer. 
Now, the last thing, and I've kind of saved the best for last, it's not one of the four points, but it's before and it's during and it's after, and it's the love of God to us in Christ. And I want to uh, shift your attention to that as we come to the Lord's table. So the most life-giving relationship of all would be characterized by love. And by love, we, you know, we throw love around all the time, that word love. So let me just help you for a second with, the, uh, with a biblical definition of love. And maybe even a non-biblical definition of love, just that many people would agree with. Love is when you set aside your interest to show your... Love is when you look out for the best interest of someone else instead of yourself. Love is not a feeling. Love is not... Although it will change your feelings... Love is not um, just an attitude, but love is a deep affection that's driving a change in your behavior so that you actually look out for someone else's best interest over your own when you had the power and ability to make it your own, but instead you acted on someone else's behalf. So that Jesus is gonna turn around at the end of this passage and say, no greater love has anybody than this, than to give his life for his friend. So abide in my love. I want you to remain the love that I've been showing you for the last three years, trying to show you, walking with you as disciples. Jesus says that that love, I want you to remain in it, abide in it, stay in that. Don't give up on that love. There's no greater love than this. And right now, in the middle of this no greater love statement, he's foreshadowing what? The cross. His death. No greater love has this than that a man would give his life for his friend. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I've been telling you what I'm doing. That's, that's unprecedented among rabbis in, 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 in Jesus' day. Rabbis in Jesus' day don't call their students friends. That's not the way it works. But Jesus does. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, remember these words. Already you are clean because, verse 3, already you're clean because of the word I've spoken to you. The gospel is, is coming out on, <laughs> the gospel is coming out of every branch of this vine in fifth, chapter 15. It's amazing. He says, already you're clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So those of you who have trusted in Christ and his grace, his gospel, his love to save you, we come to the Lord's table this morning and we receive this reminder of his faithfulness, of his persevering love toward us. If you're not yet a believer, we would ask you just to think and watch and let the, let the cup pass by you, let the tray pass by you, and ask yourself the question, who is Christ? We would offer Christ to you today, that you by faith could trust in him, and he would save and change your life. So... I'm going to pray for us, and when I pray, I'll ask our deacons if they would come while I'm praying, and, and we're going to ask the Lord to help us to see again afresh and anew who Christ is, what he has done on our behalf as we celebrate communion together. Um, Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the true Israel the true vine, 
Lord, I pray that we would, those of us who have uh, a relationship with Christ today, that we would, we would really work to remain. Help us to see. Help us to stay faithful. And Lord, remind us that we're not clean because we cleaned ourselves. We're clean because of the word of the gospel that you spoke to us that we could find new life, that you would forgive us of sin. You'd put away our, our sins and you would, and by faith that we would acquire the righteousness of Christ and that that would over time even, even change us to be more and more like Jesus. So help us today to see that. Greater love has this, has no man than this, than to lay down his life. Help us to see the gospel today, we pray in Christ's name.